This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Audio editing and bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Unreal PCs. The Know-Nothings. Keeping it fresh. And King Tut's New Doorway. where we talk about murder. Right, murder of crows, that is. Atlas Games' macabre masterpiece of murderous mayhem. Murder of crows is a card game. It's got five basic kinds of cards, one for each letter of the word murder. You win by spelling the word out in front of you. But each card also has a snippet of flavor text. And when you spell murder... You can read your card's flavor text out loud in order to hear a clever little story about how the homicide happened. Like magic! Murder of Crows is easy to learn. And gorgeous Edward Gorey meets Caligari. The demo crew at Atlas sells this game like crazy when they show it off at conventions. But somehow it remains less well-known than it deserves. Ken and Robin to the rescue! Exactly! Now you and I, Ken, can be found in Murder of Crows! That's right. Anyone who buys Murder of Crows as part of this limited-time promotion will get special Ken and Robin cards for their Murder of Crows decks. We're pretty great, too, in the parlance of the game were three crow cards, which means it's hard to stop whatever nefarious no-good we get up to. And as always, Tom, Denmark's art is wickedly beautiful. And spot on. Uh, yours looks fetchingly Betrachian. The deal is this. Head to atlas-games.com slash Robin. Oh, dear. <laughs> <laughs> Bye, Murder of Crows. And get the Ken and Robin promo cards. You may never have the chance to commit such foul deeds again. Foul deeds perhaps inspired by the need to read out loud URLs. <laughs> That's right. Not not with the two of us, anyway. Head over to atlas-games.com slash murder, Ken and Robin. Or follow the link in the show notes. Yeah, follow the link in the show notes. The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, and the beneficent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive tell us that we've once more entered the friendly, shag-carpeted confines of the Gaming Hut. And here in the Gaming Hut, it is a spirit of byplay that captures the mood at the table, people going back and forth across the table, everyone com contributing, the collaborative spirit that truly makes gaming and podcasts great. Am I right, Robin? Yes, indeed. And I believe you were alluding to the fact that we have our Patreon on the go now, and thus this special all-request episode. So if you have already jumped aboard our Patreon, thank you very much for doing so. And uh, you have, uh, many of you, uh, snapped up your priority access. So now uh, if you would like to go to the line or the head of the head of the line, depending on how much you're choosing to kick in so that all and sundry might continue to enjoy this podcast, uh, you get Priority access for asking us questions, not just for Ask Ken and Robin, uh, but for our many other segments. And listeners may note that there's a certain amount of permeability, first of all, between Gaming Hut segments and Ask Ken and Robin segments. Um, many questions can, can fit in either of those. So the way I'm doing it is paying attention to how much people are donating, because obviously if you're doing a lot to keep the show going, uh, we especially uh, want to uh, get your questions in there. But that's not the only consideration as I pick out questions I have in the show. There's a whole bunch of different other 
uh, balance issues. Uh, in each episode, I want to have a, a balance of topics. Uh, we don't want to have an all Ken's time machine or an all history hut episode. Um, and at the same time, I, we also want to have a balance of Ken heavy uh, segments with uh, uh, more back and forth oriented ones or, or Robin oriented ones. So um, what I'm doing is when I know that there's a slot I want to fill, I look to see at, at my stored list of questions that's uh, ranked uh, first of all, by uh, munificence and then by uh, time uh, when you ask the question. But by no means is it assured that uh, if you can, you know, only afford to pitch in a little bit, uh, you still have a, a good shot at getting your questions answered. And that's the case in at least uh, one of the questions here. So uh, basically, we want to keep the show the way it has always felt, but uh, recognize your uh, munificence. Uh, in uh, donating to us. And uh, without further ado, Ken, why don't you hit us with a question from our first Patreon backer to get a question in this episode, and that's Paul Stefko. Paul Stefko uh, wants to know about structuring an adventure, or God forbid, a campaign in which everyone is artificially constructed. They are in the Matrix, or they're holodeck characters, they're all Moriarty's and uh, 30s detectives and space pilots who've all met in the holodeck, I guess. Uh, and how would you be able to build a satisfying campaign in a world that is even more artificial, that is definitively artificial, in a way that an RPG kind of succeeds by not being, I guess? And so the question is, can you make that tension between a uh, heightened artificiality of character and the uh, need of a role-playing game to at least present the illusion of, of that lack of artificiality. Can you make that a productive tension or does it just annoy the bejesus out of everyone? Because I've run short individual sessions in which uh, the players are playing some avatar or fantasy or hologram version of themselves, right? They're in a holodeck, or in one case, uh, they'd been kidnapped by elves in a Castle Falkenstein game who then made them uh, run a role-playing, uh, run in a role-playing game adventure, because in the Castle Falkenstein world, the conceit is that uh, Tom Olam, the narrator, has introduced role-playing games to the uh, social uh, set of Europe, and so it's become a fad, and I figured, what more fun than to be kidnapped by horrible, horrible elves who make you play a role-playing game. Right, and these were, were these the actual players playing themselves who were then plunged into this world? These were the players playing, they were playing their characters in Falkenstein who were presented as a glamour simulacra created by the elves, right? So not, it was Okay, so layers of reality here. Layers of reality, multiple layers right. of so reality. So these are fictional characters played by the players who are then in another fictional layer of reality. Right, yes. Okay. But you could also cut a level out of that and just begin, I guess, uh, with in although why would you cut a level of real of meta out of this? Uh, begin with the notion of you're all uh, people who've been uh, created by some sort of uh, Westworld technology or artificial holograms, or you're all agents in the Matrix. And after something bad has happened, you've uh, you've got to figure out what's happening, and you and your hologram buddies have to hook up and. I don't know. Jen has holograms. Uh, Robin, did you have like a, a niece or a sister who was into Jen and the holograms? Did they have hologram adventures? Is this a unforeseen possibility that we can go around and sing songs and teach each other the meaning of friendship? I I'm afraid my uh, acquaintanceship with Jim and the holograms is at uh, many layers of remove. Many layers of, of remove. Okay. All right. So back to uh, boring uh, boy uh, holograms then. Uh, the Matrix and such. Robin, what do you what do you think? Is th is that a productive tension, or is that are we just fooling ourselves? Well, I must think it's a good idea because I've done it in print. There you go. There's a uh, mage campaign 
called Reign of the Exarchs, uh, in which it's basically a uh, gather the components of the artifact campaign in which each writer was assigned a different adventure uh, in order to uh, dole out one of the pieces of the artifact that's then assembled at the end. Is that and the cosmic flange? I, I think I think they're wands that uh, go okay, together. Right. Or something. I, for, I forget what the because they had a cosmic exactly. flange at one point, which uh, in in Mage uh, the Awakening, which struck me as very much one of those search and replace things where they. We're, we're going to come up with a better one. Oh, too late. It's in print. If, if it was a flange, I would have an intense memory of it. Having <laughs> you would remember having typed the word cosmic flange non-ironically. Right. So the idea with uh, this adventure is that the uh, characters are all uh, deep in an artificial world, and they have to then realize who they really are in order to break out of that world. Right. And so uh, the idea was you would play this campaign for a while. This wasn't the first installment of it. And then all of a sudden, the GM would switch you to a new game in which you were just ordinary people living in a suburb and it then uh, presented you with a number of obstacles uh, that you uh, ordinary people would face in, in a suburb and then slowly introduced the elements of weirdness and the supernatural and then partway through you were supposed to twig to the idea oh wait we're still actually playing our mage characters and now we have to figure out what to do We've uh, and it's sort of a uh, it wasn't just that you figured out who you were and then boom, you were all snapped back to getting to play your super powerful magicians, but that you, uh, there was an intermediate stage where you realized that you were, uh, in an artificial reality and you had to reassemble enough of yourself, uh, by, uh, sort of turning this, uh, suburban world, uh, magical again in order to fully become yourselves and fully escape it. And uh, then you, you know, found out who the bad people were who were doing this to you. And then you got your, uh, a chunk of the artifact and moved on to your next adventure. And I uh, ran this as well for my group. And uh, in order to do that, I had to run a bunch of just a regular mage uh, campaign because, of course, I didn't have the other chapters yet of the published campaign because those were being worked on in parallel by other writers. So we played a regular mage campaign for a while, long enough to uh, have it feel like something for them to uh, lose touch with who they were and then become themselves again. And it was uh, actually surprisingly successful in kind of a, a proto, almost sort of drama system experience. And the interesting uh, comment from some of the players is that they were actually more emotionally engaged in the suburban world in their sense of uh, their false selves than uh, they were with the mage characters. And so it was a little bittersweet to realize that they weren't really those people and, and uh, couldn't continue to uh, be them. And so that, that was a, a lot of fun. And, and uh, the idea there was to salt a lot of uh, clues that would gradually allow the characters to realize that they're in an artificial world. For example, whenever they tried to leave the suburb, the roads would twist and turn and they would find themselves back in it. Well, that's, a huge tip off when you can't leave your suburb to go anywhere else that, you know, something out of the ordinary is going on that then has to be investigated. So that's, I think one of the, uh, and that follows the pattern of the matrix too, that the characters begin thinking that their reality is real, discover that their reality is unreal, and then start to use that knowledge to manipulate uh, the artificial reality in order to escape it. So that's definitely the, same sort of premise that you get in the matrix. Um, the other one, of course, is that, uh, as in a holodeck adventure, you know, going in that, uh, you are 
who you are. You know that the environment is artificial, but then something happens so that the artificial environment uh, becomes dangerous. And of course, it happens so often on Star Trek that you would think that they would junk the whole holodeck <laughs> technology as being extraordinarily dangerous. Well, I mean, the, the interesting thing about Star Trek, of course, is that in the original series, or as I like to call it, Star Trek, um, <laughs> it was it was the only death penalty left in the Federation was to go to the planet where you could be in a holodeck. Remember, that was the 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 uh, the, the the crab creatures there on Talos four would would put you in that in that mind space where you lived in the illusion. And because it was so dangerous, that technology was so destructive of the human spirit. They they would kill you if you were a Starfleet officer and went to Talos four. Well, you know what happens 80 years later? They've got freaking Talos four down there in the in the lounge suite on on deck five. The, so, the crab creatures had really great lobbyists. Yeah, they they really did. They were they were like, we need more of this um, uh, hanging out with Vina as a green Orion woman technology, and we don't care what it does to our human spirit. But that 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 does set up my my larger theoretical argument about the uh, entire uh, rest of the Star Trek universe having been some sort of holodeck malfunction. And that uh, the good people of, uh, of of the original Starfleet knew all about it. The one that you talk about where the characters wake up from their fantasy world and go into a putatively normaler world. I, I think that that element, because it plays off the whole Gnostic concept, right? That we are attached to this world of, of clay, but our world of magic is the true world that we belong in. I think it works when there's that poignancy, when you're actually giving something up. Because when Neo becomes the one and discovers the Matrix, he's not giving up anything. He's giving up a schlub job as a schlub who's a schlub in the real world. And he goes... Yeah, people call him the Messiah, but it yeah. does, doesn't redound to his benefit particularly. Right. But he, but he goes off and he, and he gets superpowers and he can do Kung Fu and he can download stuff and he, and he has Carrie Ann Moss panting after him. So, you know, who wouldn't go into that illusionary world? But I look at something like the Buffy... Uh, the Vampire Slayer episode where Buffy wakes up and she's in a mental institution and her mother and dad are together and they're very worried about her. And they're like, oh, goodness, uh, thank goodness you're you're lucid and we've come to take you home. And and then she has to decide, OK, this is an objectively better world than one where I'm the doomed vampire slayer. Uh, but I know that that world is my real responsibility and I have to go back into it. And so that sets up, I think, a, a tighter emotional question. And if you're doing a one-off, I think going in the direction that you did, where you have a involving suburban life that actually means something, is maybe the direction to go as opposed to going up into a even further level of unreality, which again, if you do it as a meta joke or as a, as a, as a, as a way to introduce absurdist themes or to demonstrate that elves are horrible or the holodeck is dangerous. I guess that can make sense, but I think that that's kind of a one trick pony compared to a real solid realization that, Oh no, actually uh, my life as an adventurer is a terrible life. And if I lived a normal life, I'd be a wholer, better person, but I have to go back to this level of, of magic and danger because I'm called to it or whatever. And the interrogation of yourself that takes place when you say, why am I exactly going back to a world where manticores want to eat my face instead of staying here and uh, dating the, you know, the, the cute guy who lives across the street? Why would I do that? What's 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 in it? What's in me that makes me reject this good life and go back to this horrible life? And they do that, of course, in Supernatural like a million times. But in Buffy, it really worked. Right. And, and the inversion of that is you have to make the uh, artificial reality uh, somehow be revealed as increasingly hellish. Or unsustainable in some right. way, or you know, like in Dark the, City, right? Because in the Matrix, again, uh, you get that great speech from the Joe Pantoliano character saying, "I, 
I just want to forget that the this reality is unreal because this steak tastes really great and mm-hmm. I don't want to live in the weird uh, grungy uh, rave universe uh, that, that we really live in. I, I don't want to be reminded that uh, my body is uh, being used as a battery somewhere. I, I dig this. So in order to... to and, and that's an interesting uh, juxtaposition in that film, but I think if you want to motivate players uh, to want to get out of the artificial reality and back into their reality, you have to make the artificial reality um, somewhat hellish or, or disturbing. And so, for example, I have another uh, one of really early adventures in an over-the-edge book is called Last Chance Brains. And the single greatest adventure that you or perhaps anyone has ever written. I wasn't fishing. I just had to mention it because it fit the theme. Uh, it's the, also true. You're just standing next to the fish section, Robin. You yeah, were not fishing, but the fish uh, was there. Exactly. I, I had to buy some fish. Yeah. Um, and so well, you were looking for tartar sauce. The fish just happened to be right there. That's all exactly. it was. That's you can't blame works. a guy for getting tartar sauce. That's cool. No, I, I wouldn't blame me at all. Uh, so anyway, the idea there is there's a total reality collapse and you are, uh, confronted uh, with a bunch of different sort of uh, stuff bubbling up from the uh, collective uh, unconscious or individual unconscious of different people as uh, reality is dissolving. But it's bad if reality totally dissolves. That there's, This is an accelerating process. The artificial reality is uh, uh, just a precursor to there being no reality at all. And so your job there is to knit everything back together somehow and figure out how to do that in order to get back to your regular life and in that case you know your life on weird scary alamarha mm-hmm. is uh, markedly better than what will happen if this if reality continues to um, unravel fall in on itself um, and i guess one of the the tricks in all of these cases is you are presenting the players with something that is radically different from uh, what they uh, thought they signed on for. So you have to have a high level of trust with your players that they are going to dig being torqued around in this way, whether that's discovering that the suburban life that they think is actually kind of cool is unreal and they have to abandon that, or that you know they're not on Alamarha anymore, they're stuck in the diminishing returns of the uh, fading collective consciousness of humanity and have to get back, that they want to see that big shift happen. And so... Uh, you, uh, by definition, I think it kind of wrecks it to uh, get buy-in ahead of time to, oh, I'm going to play weird reality inception games. Are you up for that? Although, admittedly, if you're playing over the edge, you're kind of in for that already. Right, yes. In the case of over (laughs) the edge, you already have an advantage there. And same with mage, too. Right, right? yeah. um, you and, and I guess that that's a question, is that the enveloping reality around that has to be one in which you encounter that as an expectation, right? Even a Star Trek game, by choosing to uh, engage with that, you know that there's a chance that you could, A, have the holodeck uh, go nuts, or if it's just you're sticking to original series, that you could run into a big cosmic cloud that's really uh, one of those godlike aliens, and then everything could go crazy. And that that's, you know, part of the set of assumptions that you come with. But if you're just running a regular you know, D&D, relatively realistic uh, style uh, dungeon crawling game with a city component, and then everything completely goes nuts, uh, your players might not thank you for that. And also, it's it, I think it could be it, it could be hard to maintain that because there isn't like a philosophical parallel. I mean, I, I suppose you can have a thing where, oh, you face the dragon of uh, public transit or something like that. But I, I think that the, the fun thing about pulling this off in... Uh, a game like Mage is that it it 
plays into the philosophical conceits of the game in a way that uh, just saying, oh, instead of this, you've had a a weird spell cast on you uh, because this thing fell through the barrier peaks. And instead of being in uh, 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 Greyhawk, you're off in space, you know, whatever it is, right? That, that that switching between realities, I think, is less satisfying if the reality of the reality of the ontology, I guess, of, of, of your, of your existence doesn't matter. I mean, not in the sense that it's trivial, but in the sense that it's not important to the, to the real question of, of heroism and adventure, right? Which is the actual thing that you're concerned about, not, you know, sort of, uh, the, the question of gnosis, right? Right. Now, uh, at this point, I hear, uh, Simon listening intently to the podcast and, uh, wanting us to mention that, of course, we both worked together recently on a big, alternate non-reality book and that's uh, dream hands of paris exactly and that's your lovecraftian take on uh sort of two separate realities that nonetheless uh bleed into one another and that uh again if you're playing a uh, if you've chosen to play lovecraftian investigators and you uh know about the dreamlands that's also a thing where you uh should expect that that might come into play at some point and there's all sorts of other ways also that you could do, you know, sort of a Lovecraftian uh, altered reality, whether it's sort of from beyond, uh, sort of uh, your mind goes all non-Euclidean on you and you decide uh, whether you want to go back to being Euclidean or just uh, become one with a hostile and indifferent universe. So it's actually kind of uh, anything, I guess, with a uh, philosophical or supernatural element to it is something that is um, amenable to that sort of thing. But you wouldn't necessarily want to see that in Traveler, even though it works totally in track, that there's a, a different contract with your uh, players. Now, uh, just before we go, Paul mentions a uh, forgotten uh, film that's contemporary with The Matrix, The 13th Floor, which I had not heard of, much less seen. Have you seen that one? Yeah, I saw it. It was all right. It was a, it was a, a good, you know, uh, deep dive paranoia movie. It was not a, I didn't think it was a great deep dive paranoia movie. I enjoyed it, but it seemed to sort of, uh, telegraph a lot of its punches going forward. So you didn't actually have the sense of vertiginous unreality. You had the sense of someone who knew that vertiginous unreality was coming. And so you got to watch it sort of at a distance. It's like watching a roller coaster instead of riding a roller coaster. So how would you steal that concept and make it better in a role playing game? Well, I mean, you just, you, you just, um, uh, you, you know, you don't, you don't warn, you don't telegraph. And, and, and one of the things that the 13th floor does do is it's playing, everything is playing into a specific sort of a theme and a tone. And once you've figured out what the theme and the tone is, you can sort of call things coming ahead. So I think you want to do some left turns in a game. I mean, the, the thing about a 13th floor type situation is that the players are, it's, it's a trapped investigatory horror paranoia type situation, whereas something that is structurally kind of the same, like Inception, in theory, the, um, uh, the, the agency is all in the hands of the players, right? They're the guys who are incepting the guy and going deeper, deeper, deeper into various levels of dream. So even though it's the same sort of thing where you're going into nested unrealities, the fact that you have agency is, I think, what makes it less scary in a way and less uh, messed up and therefore potentially less involving than if you have no agency like they do in the 13th floor and are just sort of discovering that you've somehow gone into this labyrinth that maybe leads you out of the labyrinth that is the universe. But you can, I think you can get away from that sort of necessity of philosophical questioning by just making sure that the turns you take 
are fun and interesting turns. Again, I talk about a roller coaster. No one is surprised by a roller coaster, but you're very thrilled by the, the changes in direction and speed. So, uh, for example, I ran a game once where the, the players showed up and I said, uh, you're all standing there in, in the hundred acre wood and you're having your adventure. And they discovered sort of walking in that they were in, uh, children's, uh, adventure. And I think I actually did rip off, uh, Winnie the Pooh, uh, as my sort of substrate of it, but there was Wizard of Oz and some other stuff tied in. And so I ran a session of Zorcerer of Zoe inside my standard game because they were being told a story by Irene Adler. They were the children of the other player characters. And by the story that Irene Adler was telling them, she was revealing her plot in, in a way that, you know, you would do, uh, to the, uh, viewer. And so the viewer is realizing what's going on because it's not like he doesn't know that Irene Adler is up to stuff, but the reveal comes from the intellectual fun of piecing together the clues as the spectator, as well as, uh, enjoying the, the roller coaster ride as, the players, right? So right. that it works on those two levels as opposed to a philo- – there was no philosophical level involved. It was a ripoff of the um, Prisoner episode in which um, uh, uh, they get uh, uh, number six to tell children's stories to the kids, and he tells the the, the, the woman who is death, right? Right. And, uh, and that was – and that, that they, they were attempting to get him to reveal something about himself, and he was revealing the fact that he would never reveal something about himself. So it's a really cool psychological thing to – to look at happen, but it's not as involving as something where you are, nope, you're in a, a horrible paranoid reality and you have to get out or die, right? Right. And I'm uh, starting to suspect that this segment, uh, despite our desire to uh, fully answer all of our Patreon backers' questions, has become a reality that we must escape from in order to answer the next question. So let's uh, see if this commercial can get us out of here. The Escapist calls it gaming's most insane supplement. After a century of secrecy, three months of non-stop publicity, and a record-breaking Kickstarter campaign, the Dracula dossier is finally available for you, the home listener. Not just Dracula Unredacted, the true first draft of Bram Stoker's novel, an after-action report for British intelligence, annotated by three generations of MI6 analysts, but also the massive director's handbook that allows you to follow the clues dropped in the pages and in the margins of that uncanny document. Follow them, that is, to any of 200 different encounters, eerie objects, dangerous locations, and conspiratorial organizations, and enigmatic NPCs, any of which can be an innocent or turned by Edom, or a minion of Dracula himself. Pretty clever, eh, Robin? Bet you wish you'd thought of that. Uh Uh-huh, yeah. Thus creating an improvisational collaborative campaign for Knight's Black Agents, strangely similar to Robin's own Armitage Files campaign for Trail of Cthulhu. Strangely, but with more vampires. Way more vampires. Because the Dracula dossier blows the lid off Operation Edom, the rogue MI6 task force using Dracula to stop terror in the 21st century. But Dracula cannot be used. And Edom cannot be trusted. So open the dossier. And follow the clues. To kill Dracula for good. Yeah, that'll work. So let's sum up. The Dracula dossier is two books. Check. Both stand alone. Check. But combined, they create an unprecedented... Really, Ken? Unprecedented? Of unprecedented scope? How's that? Oh, let's see. Both books add up to something like 800 pages. So yeah! And... 
improvisational, collaborative campaign of unprecedented scope. Check! And Dracula unredacted that Stoker's real first draft, annotated by the MI6. And the director's handbook, a massive collection of multifaceted encounters. Are both available at the Pelgrane website right now. Check! And mate, the game is mine, I think. No, Robin, it's theirs. The stovepipe hats, the sound of horse-drawn carriages, and uh, I think somebody looks a lot like Daniel Day-Lewis uh, ripping off the ear of a recently arrived Irish immigrant, tells us that we've arrived in the History Hut. And this time in the History Hut, uh, patron Drew Clowry uh, asks, I would like to know more about the Know-Nothing Party, both in its historical context and what it can tell us about current events. And... Uh, Ken, I always just kind of figured that the Know-Nothings, who were a, a nativist party uh, who flourished in the middle of the 19th century, uh, that that name had just been attached to them uh, by their enemies. It was just sort of an all-purpose insult. But it turns out the answer to why they are called the Know-Nothings is um, way more interesting than that and very uh, Ken and robin So uh, how would you uh, start uh, telling people about the uh, political uh, movement that was uh, not only... Uh, nativist, uh, particularly in uh, pitting Protestants against Catholics, but was also a secret society. A secret society. It was the Order of the Star-Spangled Banner was its true and secret name, right? And it was sort of a, a Freemasonry uh, in a way. Uh, they sort of borrowed the, the structure of Freemasonry uh, as the uh, immigrants are coming into America. They are setting up their own sort of uh, societies of mutual aid and welfare like immigrants have done in America pretty much since the beginning. And the response by the uh, Americans who were already there was to set up their own secret society to counteract the theoretical secret work that was being done by the Pope and his Jesuit minions uh, within groups like the Knights of Columbus and the, and the various Irish uh, fraternal orders that were uh, the Fenian orders and things like that that were beginning to uh, spread throughout America. So, they have a secret society, and if someone asks you if you are a member of the Order of the Sp- Star-Spangled Banner, or even if they ask you, where are you going Tuesday, your response was to be, I know nothing. Right. Right? And uh, tell me about the Order of the Star-Spangled Banner. Oh, I can't tell you anything about it because I know nothing. And of course, once you wander around saying, I know nothing, it would be the work of a considerably more restrained political opposition than we've ever had in America <laughs> to not immediately start calling your foes the know-nothings. Because right. look and at presumably that. you only give that secret code response to someone you're pretty sure is is already a know-nothing that you're because otherwise you're, you're giving the game away. Right, you are sort of giving the game away. But the but you know again, Freemasonry is the secret society that has to be public so that people know how awesome it is to be a Freemason, right? It's it's that same sort of thing. Um the context of why now or not why now, but why then is that in the 1850s especially, um you had a gigantic wave of immigration into the United States. The United States suddenly becomes the the destination for a million, give or take, Irish immigrants, mostly fleeing the uh, potato famine, and a large number of Catholic uh, Germans, mostly from Bavaria, uh, fleeing various kinds of political repression. And the sudden influx of Catholics into a 
overwhelmingly Protestant society caused a great number of people to be very nervous. And the reasons that they were nervous sort of break down like they do with most things into sort of crazy reasons, like they believed that the Jesuits were plotting to seize the West uh, and reasonable things such as, well, we just fought a big war with a Catholic country, Mexico. We'd taken over a big chunk of its territory. It was unhappy about it. It had been a Catholic Republic that had fallen into tyranny. Maybe that would happen if you had a, a bunch of Catholics uh, start getting together and voting how, however the heck they wanted. What if the Pope was going to tell them how to vote? That was an issue in America all the way down to 1960. You know, uh, Kennedy had to make a speech saying that he was not going to be listening to the Pope as if he was president. He was going to be listening only to the voters and uh, not to some foreigner in a in a nice hat. Right. And now he could promise to get in a Twitter fight with the Pope. He could even promise. He probably he possibly might. Um, and so th- you have approximately from a standing start of basically zero. Over a, not even a, 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 maybe a decade and a bit, a decade and a half, you have the, uh, the, uh, the percentage of American population that was foreign born went from, like I say, zero or a fraction of a percent to 13% of the population in very little time. And that's, that, that, that's a big number. Um, and it is perhaps uncoincidentally, about the same number of foreign-born that we have in the United States right now when we have another big anti-immigration upsurge going on in both the Republican and, to a lesser extent, the Democratic Party. Bernie has a lot of other ideas, so the fact that he's also a closed-borders guy has not come up a lot, but there you go. So it is it is a big deal, and people are um, uh, beginning to notice that if you take a survey, you know, in some surveys, 60% of Americans say immigration is a bad thing, not even illegal immigration, just all immigration. And that's the kind of numbers that we were seeing in the 19-teens when we again had a huge wave of immigration from Europe, and that again caused the 1923 Immigration Act, which shut off immigration for 40 years to the United States. So this is the sort of situation that uh, the 1840s was the first decade in America that ever had to deal with this. They didn't know what was going on. And again, they looked over at Europe where these guys were coming from and they said, oh, look at that. The, uh, The Catholic countries of Europe, France, Spain, and Austria have been doing nothing for the last 20 years. Certainly 1848 is the, is the big year uh, for it. And not surprisingly, that's one of the, uh, that's the year before the Star Spangled Banner order is created. But in 1848, all of these rising Republican and Democratic movements in uh, Italy and in Catalonia and in all kinds of other places in Europe are crushed by the armies of these Catholic monarchs. And the Pope even says, he issues a a, a bull saying that uh, to rise up against monarchs is uncatholic and you should all be uh, proper uh, subservient folk and not have a democracy. And so you've got a bunch of Protestants who have never seen a, a Catholic sometimes, and they read that the Pope has just condemned democracy in Europe. These Catholic monarchs are slaughtering all these guys in Italy and wherever else. And so they're thinking, well, maybe the Catholics do hate democracy. They don't, they don't have any, any real context, except again, of course, the fact that they've just fought this war with Catholic Mexico, which again was run by a bunch of tyrants. Now, the fact of the matter is that you can have good reasons for something that still winds up in a very, uh, uh, ugly and bigoted place. And again, you see that in all manner of, of moments in American history, when you have uh, people who are questioning, for example, you have a Jewish legislature and people are saying, well, is he going to serve Israel's interests or ours? And, and that's the same sort of bigotry, basically, that you saw from the uh, 1840s uh, people who were there in the Know Nothing Party. Right. And that's no, not so long after the, the Great Panic, 
the, there's like a big economic uh, downturn. In right. The 1837, of the, the great yeah. uh, crash of 1837. The, it, it's still ongoing. It's, it's, uh, it's one of those long uh, depressions, not one of the short ones. And the other problem, of course, is that the, the Catholic immigrants are, are, are they're Irish uh, and Germans are all working for much less much lower wages because they need jobs. They've just come to America with literally nothing. So that's driving down wages for the Protestant working man and Protestant working men. If, uh, you know, they don't like it when that happens. Right. It's, it's the people always on the, uh, the lowest rung who, uh, see another rung coming, appearing below them. That's going to, you know, they're already, uh, feeling, uh, the pressure. And all of a sudden here's people who are willing to work even more cheaply than uh, they will. And that doesn't even necessarily have to be true. It just has to feel true in order to initiate a great uh, wave of uh, uh, fear. But let's move back to the more Cartesian uh, elements of this. So um, <laughs> there, there's a great phenomenon where uh, someone would run for office and then reveal once elected <laughs> that they whipping off their their uh, Mission Impossible mask that they were uh, part of the uh, Order of the Star Spangled Banner. I believe there's a, was it a governor or a mayor of Chicago who fits yes. that bill? Um, Levi Boone, the mayor of Chicago, um, he uh, he banned all immigrants from city jobs, and he is the mayor who uh, sparked the Lager Beer Riot uh, in Chicago by enforcing the law that said you had to close saloons on Sundays, and so. Uh, this was seen as a anti-Irish and anti-German act, as indeed it was. And uh, the Irish and Germans in Chicago, being much like Chicagoans always, and Irish and Germans perhaps especially, took to the streets and uh, rioted in response to that. And, and it so, was called the Lager Beer Act because the lager was their favorite, favorite sort of beer. Their beverage of choice, yes. Because uh, obviously, if you're drinking lager, you're just drinking it to get drunk. You're not drinking it as a as a proper con uh, uh, component of a meal, right? Well, that's not wrong. That would be that would be stout or porter. You know, you would drink one of those with your meal, and everyone is is respectable. Yeah. But if you're drinking lager, you're some kind of crazy foreigner, right? My favorite story, though, is the one about the stolen block intended for the Washington Monument. <laughs> All right. So the, the Pope donates a block of marble for, do you know this one? I, I do not know the, the oh, this is so awesome. Block. This is the most Cartesian element of all. So, um, the, the Pope donates a big block of marble to go into the Washington Monument, which in, in that, uh, period is, is still unfinished and it disappears. And, uh, all, uh, suspicions fall upon the know nothings. Uh, they they deny that they steal the black block of marble, but uh, of course, uh, obviously, they know that this is a magical universe, and to have a uh, blatantly papist hunk of stone in their uh, perfectly good all American axis mundi is something that they could not tolerate. So, not only uh, did they allegedly, uh, not so allegedly, steal this uh, Catholic block of marble, but they uh, managed to get uh, themselves uh, wormed into uh, running the construction project to continue to construct the uh, uh, Washington Monument. And perhaps like certain real estate developers today who are identified with nativist uh, sentiments, uh, their uh, prospectus was better than the reality. And they wound up uh, building a bunch of crappy sections of the Washington Monument that later 
had to be torn down again in order to continue building and to uh, make the monument complete. So I think anybody could take that and turn that into a, a 19th century supernatural uh, weirdness premise. Uh, but in that case, in this case, uh, the anybody is you. So what would you do with that, Ken? Well, I mean, I think that you can begin with the notion, as you say, that you're competing to build the, the, the spine chakra of America, the, 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 the Yggdrasil, the, uh, the lingam, if you want to get all fancy about it, of America. And in order to do that, you have to control the energy that flows through that, the key energy that flows up through the, through the monument. And to do that, of course, it involves having the correct medium and having it uh, shaped and placed the correct way. The notion of the stolen block of marble becomes uh, the cause celeb. I assume that what is actually going on in order for this to uh, work is that there is indeed a secret Jesuitical conspiracy that's out there trying to mess with George Washington's monument. And so the question is, did they steal the block to be blamed on the know-nothings? Did the Pope donate a proper block? Was the Pope's block from one of the obelisks that they have around Rome? So he's trying to transpose the Washington Monument into the global connection of uh, obelisk acupuncture that uh, Umberto Eco, uh, peace be upon him, mentions in Foucault's Pendulum. Uh, we've got all manner of possibilities with uh, the Jesuits in Paraguay and Tibet tuning the global telluric network uh, and just needing to get that uh, Washington Monument finished. The, the Washington Monument, of course, and Cleopatra's needles are roughly, and I want to emphasize roughly, contemporaneous. And yet there's a Cleopatra's needle also, of course, in New York. So you can pull in ancient Egypt and the uh, the hated British doing their uh, the, their attempts to uh, weaken America by putting some sort of British block in, and maybe they're behind the know nothings trying to stop the Pope's block, and they're saying, "No, we can we can supply you with a block of marble, no problem." But it's actually the um, uh, the, the privy council that's up to, up to no good trying to undo the revolutionary war by messing with George Washington. And I think it's probably the competing magical energies of everyone trying to mess with the monument that causes, as you say, this shoddy substandard construction, because obviously government patronage has never led to shoddy and substandard construction. So it must be magic. Right. Yeah. It must be. It must be. Um, and also, uh, 1850 is a, uh, feng shui juncture. So you can, uh, I'm not sure if the timeline totally um, lines up, but it's feng shui. You just make it line up. And uh, in that case, of course, uh, the forces of uh, anti-nativism, the forces of globalization are the ascended. Uh, so they would be uh, the ones uh, trying to get the uh, uh, European uh, Catholic uh, marble in there to intermix with all sorts of other bits of probably from all around the world. A piece might of have stone from the uh, Great Wall of China, probably. Yeah. Uh, yeah. They would have uh, elements from all their other feng shui sites around the world, and they would be uh, trying to get them in there. And there would be some, uh, you could either have like the Eaters of the Lotus, the evil sorcerers trying to prevent that from happening, or you could invent a new sort of localized uh, uh, anti-ascended uh, group, a sort of a Western equivalent of the uh, of the guiding hand, as it were. And you could have a big, uh, a big fight over the unfinished Washington uh, Monument and all sorts of other... Uh, exciting places in Washington. So, and I, uh, I think that the fact that Millard Fillmore is the guy who opened Japan and was the candidate for president of the know nothings without knowing about it is also <laughs> probably uh, vitally important uh, that somehow he's drawing some sort of uh, key connection from across the Pacific into we're, America. We're running long, but you're going to have to explain that one more before we get out. All right. All right. Uh, Millard Fillmore um, was the uh, 
former president. Uh, he was the last Whig president. And the Know Nothings would have their national conventions, which must have been great when they was like, oh, you're a, I didn't know you were. Oh, and <laughs> one of the problems with the Know Nothings, of course, is because it was a secret society, people would just show up at the conventions and claim they were in right. the Know Nothing party, but they weren't. That was a whole other problem. Yes. But they, and another problem was you'd ask where the food was and you'd just say, I know nothing. I know nothing. But the, uh, but they needed a presidential, uh, uh, candidate in 1856. And so they said, who's more presidential than former president Millard Fillmore? And so they nominated him while he was out of the country and couldn't say no. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> another theme of 19th century presidents is you, you foisted it on people. Yeah. And, uh, he obviously, uh, he did not win a second non-consecutive term because that would have been silly. And, uh, did he have sympathies with the, with the know nothings? No, he he was, he was not, he was not a a nativist as far as anyone can tell. Um, if he was, if he was a know nothing, it was such a secret that even he didn't know. He did not know. He was, um, (laughs) uh, he did accept their nomination, admittedly. It would be churlish as when, when General McClellan accepted the nomination of the Democratic Party on the peace platform and immediately gave his convention speech on how he would uh, finish the Civil War if elected. Um, <laughs> this is this is the sort of era in which you were often surprised by your nominee, uh, much as we may be again. There might be some big surprises coming. Um, and so that gives us our, our parallels with the present day. We've got economic hard times for uh, big sectors of the economy, if not the uh, macro economy. And you've got a uh, big influx of... Uh, uh, people uh, and uh, other people who fear the changes their presence uh, will ring. So when uh, Donald Trump uh, said a while ago that he uh, knew nothing about uh, David Duke and the KKK, uh, some were thinking he was making a sly historical reference, but that would be unusually subtle compared to the other that sorts of things. seems unlike his traditional historical references. Yes, indeed. Uh, well, I think it's time for ourselves to refer ourselves uh, by way of this commercial to our next segment. About which we know nothing. love dice dice love you now finally you can display this mutual love affair to the jealous gaze of admiring friends with dice rendezvous with randomness a gorgeous coffee table art photo book all about dice the most adventurous project yet from our friends at ask explore every side of dice through the brilliant lens of photographer Mans Daneman. After hours of photography, real, actual, no Photoshop photography, you can gaze at wonder at burning dice, fireworks melty dice, oiled dice, laser dice, rainbow making dice, kaleidoscope dice, Cthulhu dice that, with the aid of an octopus, lashed out at the photographer's knee and sent him to surgery. And generally, dice, dice, dice. Want highlight photos as posters, canvas or gallery prints, Ask Fagelm has you covered. With their Kickstarter, Dice Rendezvous with Randomness. Go to Kickstarter and search Dice Rendezvous with Randomness. It's time once again to ask Ken and Robin. So let's ask Ken and Robin. Patreon supporter Scott Bennett asks Ken and Robin, 
I am very interested in how you return to projects that you have done and keep them fresh, or if that tends not to be worth it and the only thing that sells is the newest thing. Now, I'm not sure if Scott is asking if we are creatively uh, capable of keeping ourselves fresh by writing yet more stuff about vampires or yet more stuff about Cthulhu or yet more stuff about feng shui, or if it is just a matter of market saturation. He has sort of a business and creative question in there. We should, we, we've got time. Let's, let's, let's answer both let's, sides. Let's try answering both. Uh, Robin, how do you keep yourself fresh from a uh, market or, or um, artistic perspective? Uh, well, let's start with the, with the marketing idea, because I think actually the um, interesting thing about uh, tabletop role-playing, and I think tabletop in general, is that sort of the reverse is true, that uh, when you're introducing a new thing, you're competing with people's uh, established loyalty to the things that they already like. And so uh, someone who has uh, played your game in the past, if you do a new version of that that's cool enough to re-engage them again uh, and get them back in the fold, you will get a much bigger response to that, to a return to a favorite uh, previous thing, than you would necessarily uh, get from something that, uh, you know, people who still follow your work will check you out, but you don't have that enormous wellspring of affection to draw on. You have a somewhat smaller wellspring. And so, for example, you know, a game that people loved 20 years ago, and if they are now getting back into gaming or want to see an update of that, you're going to have a much stronger version of a market pull uh, than uh, if you're doing something totally new. So it's sort of the reverse if you think of, uh, movies or comics or whatever, where it's all front-listed. But even in film... Yeah, I mean, lots of films are remakes or sequels, right? Right. Uh, in fact, you know, there's lots of things where people are trying to build on established properties, and in fact, that's sort of uh, done to a fault. So uh, unless can you have uh, another uh, angle on the, the marketing aspect of that, I guess it's time to dive into the, the creative side. So when you do you have an example of something that you've returned to after... Uh, lying fallow for a while and how you re-engage with it. Let me just uh, put a pin in that. I'm going to answer a little bit about the market because we've also got a situation in which, as you say, there are old favorites that are going to be old favorites forever or for a great long time. And so the retailer is less interested, I think, in going back to something and trying to resell it if it is not already one of those favorites. And so the interest at that level of the market, and I think there is a, a level of the, of the gamer market that is also always chasing the new shiny as opposed to going and, and having picked one. And that's either because they genuinely like playing a bunch of different games or because they enjoy being sort of on the, on the cresting wave of this a little a bubble of pop culture or whatever, but there is that that market segment that wants to know what's coming out, not what came out six months ago. So I will I will agree with you, obviously, in a, in a broader sense that a game people like is easier to get them reinterested in as a as a seller, but getting a entirely new thing out is a, a, a sort of a narrow and moving window. But in terms of creatively engaging with something that I've done over and over again. Uh, I think the way to do that is actually to try and figure out something new and different about it. So right now I'm rewriting in many ways Trail of Cthulhu and Knights Black Agents simultaneously for Fall of Delta Green. So the way to stay interested in that question is first of all to say what parts of those two games can inform each other and then the biggest, most interesting part is because this is set in a different time uh than both ours and the 30s, it has 
other challenges that are sort of um, uh, presentational and intellectual. And so you say, how do you convey what's going on in this, in this world in 1968 compared to how you would convey it if it were today? How, you know, everything that I wrote about Trail of Cthulhu works for the thirties and it works for today. How do I pull it into the, into the sixties? Same with Knights Black Agents. So that's why I've been watching a ton of 60s spy films, reading a bunch of 60s spy novels, trying to get into that mindset so that I can look at the old material with these uh, different, if not fresh, eyes of 1966 as opposed to the eyes of 2016. Right. And I think that's to bring the sort of marketing idea back in just for a second, that really uh, the thing that most appeals to people is something which is comforting and familiar that they're already invested in, but with a new element added. And in a role-playing game, that new element can just be a shinier, updated uh, version of the uh, rules that takes all of the experience that you've gathered for yourself as a designer since that thing came out, and you pour it back into the thing that helped originally make your name. And so Feng Shui uh, is a huge example of that, where uh, once I started to uh, dig into what I thought would be a kind of a light revision of the uh, rules... I saw that there were a lot of places where the game that people remember it being uh, was not uh, actually uh, there on the page. And also, you know, 20 years later, I've learned to simplify things more. And also the audience's appetite for things that are uh, different has also been able to cope with a wave of different changes over the years. So that a lot of the things that are in Feng Shui 2 would have been too weird for people to assimilate in uh, the mid-90s, but are welcome innovations now. So, for example, the way that the foes are statted is uh, much simpler. There's sort of a template system where you take basic chassis and you modify them a bit, And whereas the original Feng Shui actually had the bad guys uh, use symmetrically use the same rules that player characters did, uh, which was a big pain and didn't... Uh, uh, you know, it had a high handling cost. But uh, Feng Shui, the original Feng Shui uh, came out sort of at the heyday of uh, champions and GURPS, and that shaped people's assumptions. And we could only go so far in confronting their assumptions. And the way that we uh, sort of moved away from that, even then, was a little, you know, introduced a little cognitive dissonance, if, if not being, you know, well, it was a little controversial in some circles. Whereas now, uh, the things that were controversial then are just accepted as part of the corpus of design. And the new things I'm added, uh, you know, also, although they're new, they're not a radical shift that freaked anybody out. So one of the things, uh, if you're going back and, and doing a new edition of a rule set, the excitement is in finding the things that uh, didn't fulfill uh, the full potential of what you were doing and making them do that now. And also, uh, you know, using what is hopefully your, your clearer body of knowledge in order to uh, go back to them. So that, in fact, is uh, very exciting. And then you can do other things. Uh, you know, you also want to add stuff to the setting to change things up enough. So it's, a, it's uh, about striking a balance between the things that you know people love and accept versus the, the stuff that will make the old things seem new and shiny, both to your established base and hopefully to a new group of people who will get sucked in by their excitement and start playing as well. It's, you know, because really, if people don't wind up playing the game more, 
uh, after all those years that you haven't really succeeded. You've you know created a momentary wave of excitement in a cool book that collectors would put on their shelves, but ultimately you have to really dive in uh, deep enough to have people getting a fun new play experience out of it. So I guess the other sort of question aside from mechanics is settings, right? And if you come back to your setting after some amount of time, um, I get there, you have the option of, well, either I'm going to update the setting, right? It was 20 years ago that these vampires did this thing. And now it's 20 years later and some of them are died and some of them have gone on to become werewolves and some of them have turned uh, vegetarian and whatever else has happened. We've, we've advanced our, our meta plot. We've advanced our backstory and now we're telling a new story sequel, right? In this new world. And then the other option is to remake it to say, no, I'm going to pretend that I'm writing this game now, not 20 years ago. And I'm right. writing it sequel with, or reboot. with, with my concerns now and with what I hope to be maybe my audience's concerns now. And it's not just a matter of if you rewrote cyberpunk now, for example, uh, the, the great Pon- uh, Mike Pondsmith game, you would not necessarily, you know, you maybe you wouldn't even change the rules, although you probably would, but you would have everything about you the, would think going the, in i'm not going to change it much and right. then you would go and look at them and then you go oh no i'm gonna have to change this a lot but the but the affect of the game would have to completely change because even people who say in 2016 i want to play a cyberpunk game are not meaning that they want to have the same experience that people in 1985 said when they wanted to play a cyberpunk game just because our the, you know, the genre has gotten bigger, even if we're still all saying, no, no, uh, William Gibson is still our one and only touch point, but there's just so much more stuff in it. And the computers to, you know, pick the most obvious example in cyberpunk in 1985 are laughable and ridiculous. They're like traveler computers almost. Yeah. Uh, and so you would want and you're not to gonna have the battle with the Soviet Union, right? Either. Upgrade the tech. Well, you know, have an entirely virtual Soviet Union. I think that could be fun, but the, but the notion of, of, you know, even if you don't, want to confront anything else in a, in a world you'll, you will want to confront how it feels compared to the media that your players will be expecting it to feel like. Right. Right. And there's also the um, uh, option of taking an established framework and then just finding a new setting to uh, a new, but connecting setting to establish that framework. So um, uh, people know, I think uh, that uh, one of my big projects on the go at the moment is uh, six ages, which is a sequel to the computer game King of dragon pass, uh, which was also uh, came out in the mid nineties and uh, did kind of, okay, but was sort of too different than everything that existed at that time to market, found a new life a few years ago, because it turns out that what it really was, was a mobile game 15 years before tablets <laughs> and smartphones it has done really well in that format. And so now Fox uh, Mulder was playing it on his giant brick. <laughs> yeah. So, so now, uh, uh, David Dunham, the, uh, the producer has, uh, come back to me and we're working, uh, in conjunction with a great team of artists and coders and QA people on uh, uh, Six Ages, which takes that basic framework of that game. Uh, we have gone in under the hood and, uh, again, initially thought, oh, well, it's going to basically be the same framework. But once we looked at it, it was, oh, the probabilities here aren't exactly right. Let's have this different way of doing tests. Um, and other, you know, this, this bit of the game didn't work so well, so let's dream like Matt. And uh, so the under the hood stuff has changed a bit. And also, but also it's a different uh, culture. Uh, in the same world, uh, David has not yet revealed uh, which uh, culture and historical period we're dealing with. But again, that's uh, something we've always wanted to do for, for years and years and had to wait for uh, the, the market to change to to get to that. So that's another way 
we are both doing something that we've done before, but we're exploring an entirely new culture and finding out how that relates to that structure of the game. Or uh, Gumshoe One-to-One is about taking the familiar Gumshoe framework and uh, altering it for a different format of one GM and one player. And that seems like you know, oh, well, we're just going into another familiar area and tweaking it. Well, it turns out again, that has to be quite different because if, as, as, long, as soon as you alter one parameter in a project, it changes everything. And that's, I think, the thing that's really exciting. And I think it's, it's uh, rewarding to understand the things you have already done better and to uh, fix them as it is to start all over from scratch on something again. Yeah, I guess at the risk of ending the question with a truism, the uh, how is be interested in the project, right? Be interested in what the project was and be interested in what the project is now. And if you're not interested in the project now, it's, it is going to not be fresh and it, it's going to feel not worth it regardless of how it sells. So you have to find the thing that's interesting or hopefully the interest is organic as it is with me and Delta Green uh, or with you and Dorantha. And so you can just allow that bubbling up interest and you can just sort of point it in whatever direction with a, a, a hose or a, or a canal. But the how is to be interested in the mechanics of game design and be interested in what is the quality of that setting and what was the quality in 1995? What was that quality in, you know, 1935? And what is that quality now? Right. Right. Because neither of us, I think, has ever been in the position of uh, being Arthur Conan Doyle and going, Oh, I guess people still want more stories with that dumb Sherlock Holmes. Okay. That guy. He didn't, he didn't die in the falls after all. Uh. Yeah. I mean, doing two Star Trek role-playing games literally back to back is the closest I've gotten to being sick of Sherlock Holmes. And even then I still had a great, great time writing the word Romulans and knowing I was getting paid for it. So that was pretty great. Yeah. Every time you wrote Romulans, you got paid six to 10 cents, six to 10 cents. You know it. Okay. Well, on that note, engage cloaking device and, uh, let us, uh, answer another question for another, uh, Patreon patron right after this important commercial message. This episode is also brought to you by the shadowy strike force that is Arc Dream Publishing. Their Kickstarter for the Delta Green role-playing game has come to an end. With smashing success, funding a case locker full of stretch goals. From scenarios to setting notes to fiction and even a play. A play about a certain yellow king. But as the team of Dennis Detweiler, Adam Scott Glancy, Kenneth Height, Shane Ivey, and Greg Stolze frantically burn the midnight oil to bring you all that rogue counterintelligence goodness... You can still catch a case of Delta Green Fever. With such products as the source book that started it all, the original Delta Green. Countdown, its update to a fear-drenched new millennium. Or play the new Delta Green game with free quick start rules. They come with a scenario and pre-generated characters. Check out such terrifying fiction anthologies as Extraordinary Renditions. With a story by yours truly, or Tales from Failed Anatomies. With a special guest story by yours truly. Not to mention Strange Authorities. Or dare to swipe the pages of the twisted grandpappy of Cthuloid zines, The Unspeakable Oath. And stay tuned to this audio space for more Delta Green role-playing news. Plus an acid-tinged hint or two of the fall of Delta Green, the 60-set gumshoe standalone game by our very own Kenneth Height. How's that going, Ken? I'm writing it even as we speak with two of my extra arms and my auxiliary brain case. So brace yourself for the coming flood of Delta Green from Arc Dream Publishing. 
the whirring of time gears and the clacking of chronotons tell us that we're once more in proximity to Ken's time machine. That is, of course, the conveyance that Time Incorporated uses uh, to send him back into history to bend, fold, spindle, and even mutilate it. And this time, uh, due to his swank access as a Patreon backer, Stephen Hammond is able to pry open the files of Time Incorporated and get Ken to explain something that he has already done in the timeline uh, to wit. How did Ken keep Howard Carter from opening the recently discovered doorway in the tomb of Tutankhamun, and who or what was he trying to protect? So I guess we have to lay some groundwork here, uh, starting with, uh, we know uh, that he's everyone's favorite hockey and that he was born in Arizona, but uh, for those uh, not currently looking at him on uh, Wikipedia, who was King Tut? King Tut was the uh, pharaoh, the son of Akhenaten, who was the crazy uh, heretic pharaoh who uprooted all of uh, Egyptian society, religion, and government, and uh, attempted to remake it in his own monomaniacal, monotheistic image, and was immediately rejected by the entire population, and uh, his name was chiseled out of monuments, just like Nefren Ka, and his son was, uh, his name was changed from Tutankhaten to Tutankhamun to indicate that we were going back to a proper god, uh, Amun, not a weird god, Aten, and... Uh, the sad uh, uh, case is that uh, Akhenaten had been so distracted by trying to rebuild Egypt that he'd forgotten to do the important part about, you know, uh, stopping foreign people from taking the empire away and keeping the canals up and doing all the other stuff. So Tutankhamun had a short but ter- tumultuous reign and was uh, probably clonked on the head and dumped into a tomb in the Valley of the Kings, uh, there to rest forever. Or And by forever, I mean until 1922, when Howard Carter found it. Uh, who is the subject of the next question? Who is Howard Carter? Howard Carter is a beloved uh, Egyptologist who, uh, he, he sort of went through the canonical list of pharaohs, and he noticed that no one had found Tutankhamun, and that a lot of other people in the various, in the dynasty, the 18th dynasty there, had been buried in the Valley of Kings, and he's like, well, why wouldn't they have buried Tutankhamun? And everyone's like, well, he was a boy king. He was probably not very important. He was the son of Akhenaten, who everyone hated. And he thought, nope, I'll bet that there's more to that story. And poked around until, sure because enough. if nobody's found him, he's still all got his loot, maybe. He's still all got his loot, exactly. His fat, kingly loot. And uh, he sort of um, goes through a, a great deal of probably very tiresome uh, research, and then even more tiresome poking around in, in rocks in Egypt until, sure enough, he finds the the door to KV-62, which is the official name of the tomb, in the Valley of Kings. Literally the last chance that he gets, because his patron, Lord Carnarvon, is about to cut off his funding, because he hasn't been finding Tutankhamun for years and years and years. The number of years in which he did not find Tutankhamun exceeded the number of years in which he did. In which he did. Uh, by a lot. Uh, he uh, So he finds Tutankhamun, goes in, uh, he bores a little hole through the wall, peeks in, and someone says, what do you see in there? And he says, wonderful things, opens up the, the tomb, and suddenly Egyptomania becomes the order of the day, and we all get to hear about uh, King Tut's heretofore unknown birth in Arizona. So tell us about this new door that has just been discovered. All right, the new door is in the north wall. There may also be a new door in the west wall. And a guy named Nicholas Reeves, who is with the University of Arizona, and there is our connecting uh, link back to Steve <laughs> Martin. You go, ancestral connection. Was looking at a, and this is great, this is, ah, this is so great to be in the future. A Spanish company, This it, speaking of William Gibson books, this is like a William Gibson book. A Spanish company had paid to do super ultra high resolution scans of the entire tomb of King Tut so they could build an awesome virtual reality environment for people to wander around in. And 
uh, our, our buddy Nicholas Reeves couldn't get to the Valley of the Kings because there's a list, I guess, and you have to be on it, but he was able to get these scans. And so he goes through the scans and he looks at them and you can, it goes down to the individual flecks of paint on the walls, right? It's super high res. So he's looking at them and he's like, gosh, that uh, image looks like a door. I wonder if that's a Photoshop artifact or an overlap of the grids, but nope, it turns out. He thought it was for sure a door. So he publishes a paper. The Egyptian government goes in and starts doing thermal imaging on the wall. And they say, yes, there is a thermal difference behind that wall. So we know that there is something behind the wall. That uh, report came out, I think, in November. We are in, I guess, digging season in Egypt as we as we get into uh, March. So perhaps they will go down and and start doing more thermal imaging or, or uh, confirm or deny the look at the West wall, which is another place that our man Reeves uh, thought that there was a door because the tomb of Tutankhamun turns out to be tiny and weird, much like uh, the person in it, much like uh, Tutankhamun. And that was the explanation, right? It was Tutankhamun is tiny and weird. That's why he's in a tiny, weird tomb. Uh, he's, uh, he's killed in a hurry. There's a borderline civil war going on. They got to just dump him and get him into the field of bull rushes and go back to important stuff. Right. When, when you murder the dude, your priority on having his tomb be spiffy is low. It is low. It is low. But Carter thought that the, the, the tomb was backwards, right? It's on the left side, not the right side. There's other weird things about the imagery that are wrong. And he described it as demi-royal, which I think is a great way to, to describe a, a, a pharaoh tomb. Um, especially one that makes your whole fortune, Howard Carter. But the, uh, <laughs> but our buddy Reeves says, look, if you just, Assume that this is one room of a tomb. It suddenly matches the very, very standard. And Egyptian funerary architecture is super conservative and super unchanging. And it becomes a standard tomb if you assume that there's these other two rooms. And look at that. And so Egyptologists did indeed look at that. And uh, he says that the north wall there, there is a painting on it of uh, uh, supposedly... Uh, Tutankhamun and his good buddy, the vizier Ai, who by entire coincidence became pharaoh right after Tutankhamun died. And so this is Ai saying, hey, Tutankhamun, how's it going? I'm not going to hit you with anything really hard anytime soon. And uh, Reeves says there are problems with the art that Ai is depicted as a young man and Tutankhamun is depicted as an old man. He doesn't believe that that's because uh, that's the reverse of the actual uh, status at the time. He thinks that that's not just weird Egyptian um, art defining uh, godly reality. He thinks it's actually so that someone painted uh, Tutankhamun saying hi to Nefertiti, who was his aunt uh, in a way, or his stepmom or both. Egypt is weird. Um, or his mom even, but that's less likely that, that he's uh, greeting Nefertiti because this is Nefertiti's tomb and Nefertiti is behind one of those doors and that Nefertiti is in maybe the North chamber and the West chamber is the storeroom of all of Nefertiti's treasures that would have been moved in there to make room for Tutankhamun stuff. So Tutankhamun has been crashing at his aunt's place for 3000 years. So in 2016, we don't quite know what's behind those doors yet, but of we course, can you know what's behind those doors? Because you've been back in time and uh, why, first of all, did you need to conceal those doors uh, from Howard Carter, or was that just sort of an ancillary effect? Well, I mean, uh, the the important thing to do was to conceal the doors from people who were going to dig up Nefertiti and get Oliver Knight's stuff lost. Because remember, King Tut is virtually the only tomb that we found intact at all. So it was very important, first of all, to conceal Nefertiti's tomb. And that I did, like, 
thousands of years ago when so it was this is another time incorporated arts preservation project. That was a different mission entirely. And it was just a matter of, of keeping uh, Nefertiti's tomb intact until it could be found by people who would not immediately smash it to pieces and uh, sell it on the black market, as indeed happened to literally every other tomb in Egyptian history or almost every other tomb. There, I think there have been a couple that have had uh, gold and, and whatnot, but the uh, keeping Nefertiti's stuff intact was important, not least because Nefertiti uh, was the one assumes patroness because one has to assume something, but was very much involved with the weird circle of quasi representational art that came out of this whole Akhenaten rebellion. And so people are painting Akhenaten as a weird, spooky, long headed, uh, creepy looking crazy person, as opposed to a entirely conventional Pharaoh, because one assumes that along with the single son of Aten staring at everyone, you're supposed to draw people as they actually appear. That's been the argument for a hundred years. I think it's probably not true that there's probably some other weird religious significance to drawing Akhenaten as a creepy alien, or he was a creepy alien that is, can't be ruled out. I couldn't rule it out at the time because I did not want to get close to Akhenaten, not a drinker. But the important thing is that the art that is accumulated around Nefertiti would be unique and sui generis within Egyptian art. And so that art is worth saving. Whereas the rest of the stuff, you know, the golden funeral mask of Amos or whatever else that, you know, you've seen one funeral mask, you've seen them all. So uh, did you interfere with Carter at all? Uh, no, Carter just didn't go through the wall because Carter, you know, Carter had a whole bunch of gold and, and furniture and everything to uh, deal with. Lord Carnarvon started asking a bunch of unpleasant questions, but fortunately he succumbed to a completely unrelated ailment. <laughs> Would you care to expand on that? Oh, you know, you know, just a thing. You know, you get, you get your, 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 uh, your tomb. Uh, death comes on swift wings to people who desecrate the tomb or ask a bunch of pesky questions about why are you here and what have you done with my brandy? Are, are you implying that you're the Pharaoh's curse? I am a Pharaoh's curse. I would never <laughs> say the Pharaoh's curse. <laughs> Um, and you were helping the Pharaoh's curse along again as an arts preservation project? Yeah, basically. Um, uh, uh, Lord Carnarvon's interests in the tomb were not what they ought to be. He was, he was a, a problem child. Um, he's connected to, uh, all manner of shady, uh, uh, British intelligence characters. I think it was just probably best for everyone that he not get Nefertiti's art, that he can have Tutankhamun's art and we'll see what he does with that and then we'll worry about it next time. And, did you help the curse along in any other ways? No, there's no such thing. No such thing as a Pharaoh's curse. That's crazy. It's just math. Right. Robin, it's simple statistics and probability. I'm surprised at you. Although, <laughs> I have a great book saying that it was Aleister Crowley's fault, which we should talk about at a different time. Aha. Uh -huh. In a different segment. Well, I think uh, we then can consider uh, Patreon backer Stephen Hammond's question as answered as in full as it is responsible to uh, answer. And exactly. therefore, uh, because we promise to answer people's questions, but we don't promise to answer them in an incriminating way. No, I th I'm pretty sure that the, st the statute of limitations on pharaonic curses is like a thousand years. So I probably shouldn't say anything about that until uh, 2923. Well, uh, <laughs> by that time, we'll have another Patreon in order to uh, keep our chirogenic selves uh, alive for another couple of centuries. Yes. Ken and Robin's frozen heads talk about stuff. Yes. Uh, until then, I think it's uh, it's time to uh, uh, bid you all uh, patron and non-patron alike adieu. And uh, next week, we'll be back to our uh, usual format, and we'll be uh, salting in uh, patron uh, questions uh, as we go along. And uh, uh, the questions have all been really great, so whether you're a patron or not, I'm sure you'll be interested in listening. So uh, join us next time, and the time after that, and the time after that.
Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Palgrain Press. Dice. Rendezvous with Randomness. Arc Dream. Dork Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Robin. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff. <laughs>